For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Oh, hello and welcome to our first Pass the Mic episode for Series 5. Now, if you listened last week, you'll know this was coming. And if you haven't, I recommend you go back because I'm in conversation with Aja Barber about why Pass the Mic now. And here we are, because this is the exciting bit. She's taking over the interviewer's chair at Wardrobe Crisis this week. Yes, Aja Barber is our first guest host. Aja is a writer, activist and sustainability expert who really zeroes in on changing the fashion system, questioning systemic racism and inequality and exploitation and calling fashion billionaires to account, which she's very good at. So you probably know all that about her. Aja's a really in-demand commentator. She's a fantastic writer. She's actually working on a new book. And you possibly follow her on Instagram. If not, you can find her at Aja Barber, A-J-A-B-A-R-B-E-R. But did you also know that she's got a bit of a capsule collection? It's with the London-based sustainable brand Laura Jean. And it's gorgeous, like linen pieces and knits. But the key is it's ethically made, of course, and it's size-inclusive. You can find them at Laura Jean, L-O-R-A-G-E-N-E. Now, I mention this because Aja brings it up in the interview because they're talking about Black Friday and about what brands can do to kind of push the system and just really, I don't know, like come up with different ideas. And what they did was for every discount that they gave their customers, they matched it and gave it to the garment workers. So for Black Friday, they basically paid their makers more. How good is that? I love it. Okay. Aja's guest this week is her friend Kalkadin Legesse. Kalkadin is the founder of Sancho's, a pioneering black-owned ethical fashion retail business in Exeter in the UK. They sell ethical clothing and fair trade gifts and accessories from a bunch of independent sustainable brands. But they also really innovate with their pricing and you're going to hear all about that. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, I mentioned we've been working on this for a while, but it feels so serendipitous to be publishing this this week because we've just come out of Black Friday. We're going into the holiday and January sales frenzy. And it's really interesting to hear from an independent retailer on how they handle this and Aja and Cal couldn't touch on it. But also, as I talk to you this week, we've just had the news that Topshop has collapsed into administration in the UK or Arcadia Group, which owns it. And for me, this feels like this moment with the old retail models buckling under all these different pressures and the new era coming through. And I reckon that new era belongs to the likes of Sancho's. I should just tell you where you can find them. Don't worry, we'll put all these links in the show notes, but you can find them at sanchosshop.com, S-A-N-C-H-O-S shop.com. You could actually go in person if you're in Exeter. There are 117 4 Street and Exeter is in Devon. And you can find them on Instagram. So it's at wow Sancho. All right, I'm getting out of here. Actually, one more thing. Please, can you help me spread the word about this project? Series five, pass the mic. It's been so much work and it's so wonderful and I'm so excited about it and there's loads more to come. So I just really want to get as many people as possible to hear these inspirational conversations. If you can share, please do. You can use the hashtags, share the podcast mic and wardrobe crisis guest hosts and you know where to find me. I'm at Mrs Press or at the wardrobe crisis. All right, now I'm passing the mic to Aja Barber. Hi, Kalkanen. Thanks for joining me today in this episode of Wardrobe Crisis. And I am really honored to have been asked by Claire to be involved in this takeover that she's hosting with her podcast. And I couldn't think of anyone that I'd rather speak to about this topic. I think it's also really interesting because we met randomly. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, universe brings people together doesn't it yeah I think it's destined to be like so for those of you that don't know Kalkinen owns a shop called Sancho's she's based in Exeter and she runs it with her partner and uh, they are one of probably my most favorite sustainable and ethical places like to buy so many of my 
clients, our fans, everybody is just everyone I know buys something from Sanchez because you, you. you all are really good at buying. You're really good at bringing like new products to an audience that wouldn't know where to get them. And I just think you're just an all around like stand up member of your community. You're involved in so many different things. Mm-hmm. And I met Calcadon. I was on my honeymoon. Well, our mini moon, our actual honeymoon was uh, in Japan, but I was on my mini moon. We were in Devon and my partner said, oh, we should drive to Exeter for the day. There wasn't much to do because it rained every single day, like cold, (laughs) freezing rain in April. So my partner said, let's drive to Exeter. Maybe we'll find something to do there. And I, we were just going up and down the street. And I remember going, that's a beautiful shop. And so I made him stop the car and then I came in and I just, I didn't even realize that it was sustainable and ethical. And I didn't have a platform at the time. And one of the things I loved about you was that I often feel like as a marginalized person in the ethical and sustainable fashion realm, which can be very wide at times, I didn't have to prove myself to you. I feel mm-hmm. like often, you know, if I say I'm a writer in ethical and sustainable fashion and I talk about race and feminism people are like oh that's nice dear but then when they see my Instagram follow count they're like oh Mm -hmm. I've had that happen a lot with you I didn't have a following and you immediately were like oh well that's great because this is an ethical and sustainable (laughs) shop I think I remember you coming in and being so like sprighty (laughs) and happy you know and it makes sense because you're on your mini moon (laughs) but it was such a dreary day wasn't it oh it was miserable yeah I think I I used to work in the shop front a lot so I think the relationships that I was able to build with people was one of the things that I enjoyed most about being on the shop front what drives you and, and what brings you joy from like Sancho's Um, Like really simple things. I really like my team. We just get on well. You know, it's a really lovely place to work. I really like seeing people thrive in their tasks. I don't know if that sounds like really wet to say, but just like when somebody like they're learning something and then they master it and they do it well, like I feel just so pleased and proud and fortunate. So I really like that. I think I like autonomy. Like I like being my own boss and Mm. You know, I always think to myself every day that I wake up late and like make myself go on, log on to my emails. I always think of the Beyonce lyrics in Ego. You don't have to call into the work because you're the boss. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I came into the store, you were just like working the desk and I was just so impressed. I was like, this is your store? (laughs) Well, that's lovely. You know, one of the things that really does kind of grind my gears is that Mm -hmm. given the option, people won't think it's my business. And it really has made me quite stressed over the years. And one of the reasons why I try to be really clear now that it is my business is because I think in the past, I just hope that if they'd see me, they would think it was mine. Mm-hmm. But that, that doesn't happen. And even sometimes on Instagram, what will happen is we'll have like a picture of like a white model or a staff member and people will be like, oh, my God, your shop's amazing. And it's like literally, literally find another post and like you would know. So I just I think that instinct is a different supremacy. Yeah, it's white supremacy. It's the idea that like people aren't used to seeing marginalized people in leadership positions, owning stores, taking control of really pressing conversations and it's not for lack of want it's for lack of access for being given the space you know I think what you've done with Sancho's is revolutionary in a way you know and I think that that's so important but also why is it only time for us to do these things now it was like a few years ago I started to see all these women of color who I've admired for years get bestseller books you know, like um, Roxanne Gay and, you know, Ijeoma Oluo, my friend Samantha Irby, mm-hmm. every single one of these people writes bestseller books. Mm-hmm. But like, we could have done this straight out of college. Why did we have to wait until like this time period, you know? Yeah. And that's the importance of representation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, visibility would make a difference. But that is a question I ask myself. It's like, I think even internally, like I'm every day realising that I can make those decisions for myself. And yeah. the capacity potential, the reach potential changes every moment. And then it makes me kind of wonder, like, you know, what took so long. But then, of course, I know, you know, it's internalised kind of racism. And yeah, it's that. within all of our systems. And that's the reason why I think women of color, we always have to sort of find like a little back door to slide into, to be present in the conversation. For me, everyone's like, you know, your platform is so, it's so different. No one else is doing this. And it's like, because all the other traditional income streams have not actually worked out in my favor because I'm a woman of color, which is something that I'm writing about. You know, it's just like, I've tried the traditional paths and in some ways I'm grateful because the fact that I was never given agency or allowed to have any sort of success meant that I became deeply critical of the system in a way in which the system needs to be criticized. But I always feel like we always have to find a backdoor way to make things happen for ourselves. And it's, it's a bit unfair. It is unfair. Um, but I do think you're like a really wonderful example of how you can do that and win, you know, and, be true to yourself and be supportive of your community and just be a rock star. So, Oh, you're so sweet. The amount of times I almost gave up, let me tell you, but you know, it's cool to finally be in this position where people want to listen to me and then to also see my friends in similar positions. I mean, you and I were in an article together refinery 29 (laughs) and that just brought me so much joy. I was so happy. You know, when you're like, into a room and there's no other black people and suddenly you're in the room with a lot of black people and your friend is there yeah it's brilliant if it weren't for COVID there'd be many a party talking about representation like I think in the time that I've known you you've made so many attempts to kind of make some space for me and my work as well you've not had to and I see it and I'm just I'm so grateful for it and it teaches me how I should behave to others as well and I'm really grateful for you and for those lessons. And I think that the really hard thing for women of colour who are in this industry and others is, I think, being seen, being visible. Representation is everything because you can't be what you can't see. And also, I think we take for granted how much it affects us. And I take for granted how much it affected me. And even like being able to conceptualize what I could do. And now that I see an increasing amount of people kind of more visible in sustainability, in fashion, in leadership, I feel freer to imagine, you know, what I could do. The possibilities. And what you said is so true. Like what you can't see, you can't be. It's just like, I don't think that a lot of people who aren't marginalized don't understand what it actually feels like to be in a room and, and only see yourself mm. and what sort of difference it makes when suddenly you're not the only person standing in the room who looks mm. like you mm. you know even just like backing each other up on lived experiences mm. that could be so important sometimes absolutely I think what can happen if you are kind of the only black or brown person in the room it's easy for people to dismiss your perspective as irrelevant to the whole you know yeah I think it's by showing solidarity with one another that we can say this perspective matters to everybody like everyone's got a stake in this and and that takes representation too it takes two people in a room or in a call to be able to hold that space because ultimately I think the powers that be would rather things continue as they are and even though they are expressing a willingness to change that change is uncomfortable for them so that's why we've got to keep pushing I actually did want to tell you a story about being a person of color in ethical fashion yes Um, I want to hear it okay so (laughs) pre-corona you know when I'd be going to trade shows to buy I know our um, world changed so much didn't (laughs) it I felt like I was just getting like brought into the world and then it was just like okay everything's shutting down yeah it's, it's been funny to be honest I don't miss traveling for trade shows like now yeah. that now that it, yeah because it's a bit of a hassle and I always get tempted to like carry all the pieces of paper so like every lookbook every line sheet everything every bit I'm the same and I don't throw things away either yeah. because I've I always feel like there's bits of information in there that's really useful to what I write about so yeah, yeah I, I feel you so yeah so I don't have to 
fill suitcases up with paperwork anymore, which is good. But um, so I was at a, a stand of like one of the largest sustainable fashion brands looking at their collection for the coming year, kind of making a decision as to what I should bring in. A customer of mine whom, you know, Sanchez had spent, you know, a few thousand pounds a month really with them. And the the sales director came to me and told me to leave and he said you can't be here looking at our products and you can't steal them you can't steal the ideas you know you should keep going and I had to explain to him that like I was there to buy products from them and that I was one of their biggest customers in the UK and of course like people don't know what to do when they see their racism so clearly like face reflected back in them so it was just really awkward oh that's so awkward I awkward and at the time I was like angry but also you know you have 24 hours to make you know half the decisions of a year for your business so you don't have much time to think about things but I look back now and I think actually that's really indicative of my experience in sustainable fashion from from where I am as a shop owner and it's this disbelief that like I could be the business do you know what I mean I could to the extent that people won't sell to me sometimes do you know what I mean I know exactly Um, what you mean it's it's infuriating and it's those little microaggressions that still really kind of exist in the world that we're moving into and we have to do stuff about that because it's not good or like at PV, Premier Vision is one of the biggest fabric trade shows in the world. It takes place in Paris twice a year. But if you are an Asian person and you go to PV, you definitely get looked at a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of racial bias there, I think, because everybody's always talking about, oh, you know, the Asian market will knock this off or something. And I just think that's horrible. That's it's terrible. absolutely horrible. I actually had someone from a manufacturer say that to me this was a white person on the train back and he was the person that you should be watching because he worked for a fabric mill that mm-hmm. knocks off stuff at pv and he literally said well i'm not asian so nobody's looking at me it's horrible it's That's absolutely true. horrible there's this othering and this perception that you lack inherent value Yes. And I think people are only realizing that it is it's based on, you know, racism and xenophobia and misogyny. Yes. Whereas I think even a year ago, I think it would have been harder to get people. Ten point. Yeah. And I don't know how I feel about that, because, of course, on one hand, you think, OK, well, at least things are moving forward. But on the other hand, you think like, wow, it took so much to get here and we're still so far away from where we should be. It took, what will it take? took so much. And I just... And I also feel like there's tokenizing going on because I feel like there's not enough of us still. I mean, I get asked to do a lot of cool stuff. I'm not being an ingrate about that. But I also feel like, you know, I don't want all the things. I want more black and brown voices to be at the table because I can't do all the things and I don't want to do all the things. And I want representation, but I don't always want it to have to be me or you or someone else talking about these things there just needs to be more seats at the table absolutely and I think that one way in which we do that is by you know holding the door open for people like that's something that I'm increasingly conscious of and trying to identify like how how do I do that in in my life and in my work yeah and then in another way is by being really conscious of businesses who are being performative and you know, defining the difference between being offered a seat at the table and being able to create your own. Tell me a little bit about like your childhood and, you know, being a person of Ethiopian background and what brought you to Sancho's. I was born in Addis Ababa, so the capital of Ethiopia. Um, My family migrated, well, we sought asylum in the UK when I was five years old. I was really lucky to move to the UK at that age because it meant that um, I was able to complete my primary school education, secondary school, everything here. Whereas I think for my other siblings, it wasn't that straightforward. I grew up kind of with a really estranged relationship with Ethiopia, whereby the only thing I really knew was, you know, charity ads and Bob Geldof and you know my parents you know so it's it's a strange way to find out about 
you know your home or your background or your roots your identity I think it's hard for I always felt even before I completely understood but I always felt for children that were first generation immigrants I just always felt like there must be such a pull because your parents come from such a different environment and obviously you know, you've moved for this reason or that reason. Mm-hmm. And so you're assimilating why I think it's harder for parents more so. And then it's also hard to see that your child is suddenly enveloped in a world that you don't really quite understand either. Yeah, it's, it's as you describe, there is such a split between home life and outside home life, you know, different languages. Like, so for example, my English is good, obviously, I've got really good English. But there are some things that I really struggle with, like I struggle with grammar, I struggle with spelling sometimes. And for ages, I just thought that was like laziness, you know, it was just me being lazy in my learning. But really, from the ages of like five to maybe 16, I didn't speak English at home. Yeah. Um, Luckily, like my family, we've all worked at it for a long time. And I think we've got a really great relationship because we can now kind of really reflect on what it has meant to uproot from your home and build a new life in a new country and one that's quite hostile and I think each of us have had our own journeys like my dad his own my mum her own my sister my brother me and we are growing in our ability to kind of understand ourselves and each other um like I think a lot of you know the black and African diaspora community have been the past year especially but yeah it was really so it was one thing I'll tell you is my mum used to make me chicken sandwich and peanut butter sandwiches for lunch <laughs> so I, I bet to- the kids at school really <laughs> love that I thought it was the most normal thing <laughs> to like find out it's not chicken it's jam <laughs> you're supposed to have peanut butter with um but we didn't know <laughs> I grew up in northern Virginia my parents now that like I'm an adult I actually realized that my parents were quite progressive hippies and like my mom used to never buy white bread and I remember getting made fun of for my whole wheat bread because everyone else had like white bread and it was just like ew what's that whole wheat gross you know but I didn't know anything besides that but in some ways I feel extremely privileged but at the same time it also got me made fun of my older sister calls my parents uh stinky vitamin hippies because they (laughs) love like apple cider vinegar, garlic pills, and they take a boatload of vitamins. So it's weird because you you grow up with your parents and then later on you look back and you're like, actually, they were really progressive and shopped at a food co-op and did all of this stuff that's like now considered super trendy, but just got me like made fun of as a kid. No, absolutely. I think that, first of all, kids are terrible, aren't they? It's going to be cruel. Horrible, like, bunch of years. <laughs> and thank God, like, we're on the other side of it now and can look back and kind of know better. Yeah. Um, yeah, so for me, so I, I got into fashion because I, when I was doing my degree, my first degree, I went to live with my grandma in Ethiopia. And it was, like, the house that I was born in, hadn't been there for almost 15 years. And I went to kind of, you know, sleep in the spare room and live and work there. I hated my job so I worked for a charity an NGO like one of the largest ones and it was just so strange like first of all it was a really religious NGO so they start the day with morning prayers and actually one day I went to join them in morning prayers and the the, the preacher took like a liking to me and I didn't really speak um, Amharic at the time so my Amharic was really poor but he basically tried to exercise me at like 9am in front of hundred of my colleagues and I didn't know what was going on (laughs) so I was just you know crying out of just confusion so you can imagine the kind of workplace it was it's pretty intense um but it wasn't (laughs) so it was tasked with um one of kind of many departments the one that I was in was tasked with creating jobs for women largely Mm -hmm. women who had been widowed in rural areas so that means women essentially who they don't have a road next to them they don't have electricity they don't have plumbing our definition of rural here is you know it's not quite the definition of rural there and so that's what I spent half a year doing and over time it became clear that what NGOs were getting really good at 
is telling funding agencies here, so the EU, DFID, USAID, you know, good stories about development plans, but they weren't very good at actually helping people create jobs. That's such a shame because they've got huge budgets. And of course, they take the whole narrative of a country like Ethiopia, the entire narrative of that country has been warped by NGOs, right? And the message they've been telling for, you know, the past half century. So it was strange. It was really difficult for me. And I'm thinking, you know, I used to, my first experience of white saviorism, and this is a little bit embarrassing to say, right? But I think it was myself going from growing up in the UK, not really knowing what Ethiopia was about, and then going to work for a charity thinking, oh, that's my way of helping Ethiopians who are poor and like what they need is help. Mm-hmm. And I saw it in myself, this kind of like, it was like a wake up call to realise these people, you know, they've got amazing crafts, amazing skills, amazing talents, they're doing wonderful jobs. But like everybody who is in a position to kind of amplify them or help them are just like infantilizing them and then exploiting them. And that's the pattern of trade. And I was disappointed in myself because like I I didn't know that until I went there to see it myself. And obviously we can't, you know, it's quite a low standard. We can't all kind of experience things firsthand, you know. Mm -hmm. Obviously I'm not white, so that's not technically white saviorism, but I think it's that kind of that infantilizing of black people, which I somehow subscribe to and bought into. I think when we're in these cycles, it's just, you know, especially when you live in a place in the global North, that's a very wealthy and affluent place because of the work and labor of the global South. There's always this sort of inherent superiority while not actually really understanding why these systems are created, who created these systems and how we maintain them by not like, decolonizing the ways in which we think about things. And so I think everybody goes through that phase where it's like, I just want to run away and work in a foreign country and help people that really need my help. When in actuality, like people in countries that have been traditionally pillaged, which is what I use for countries, I don't say like developing and I don't say third world because I find that deeply insulting, but I say traditionally pillaged because most of the time the countries which people are referring to are actually incredibly resource rich and incredibly labor rich, but they're not cash rich. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? You know, they've got all the things that we need and we use in our part of the world. So why is it that these, these countries are not wealthy? You know, there's got to be something about the system that isn't really working fairly. But anyway, so how did all of that sort of lead you to clothing and Sancho's and ethical fashion? Yeah, so um, in the weekends, I would go and explore markets, right? And I loved it. I just loved being with tradespeople and sellers. And I loved like bargaining for the deal, you know, just exploring things. And I got further, like deeper and deeper into these outdoor hilltop markets until I found the makers and the crafters and like for the first time in my life I saw how fabric was made you know how fabric is woven and it was just incredible it was like it was like magic I was like I had no idea that you could take a bit of cotton spin it and then thread it and then weave it to make a garment and then I tried buy things from these people and they were charged like hella money you know they were making good money And it was like, why is this NGO trying so hard to create jobs when there are people here creating like such marketable products who don't have a market? Do you know what I mean? It's just like, it makes no sense. It's such wasted energy. And then that's how, that's how it started. It started with me just trying to take those products to a different market, to the UK, to see if I could sell them and then send more money back home and that's how Sancho started you know and then I started applying my understanding of development and economics and business and realized that actually this is every industry is exploitative in this way and fashion is itself very exploitative extractive as well yes absolutely extractive and like so much power is taken away from garment workers and by design but there are alternative means like there are ways in which you can have positive relationships with everybody along your supply chain 
and I just think that's a really powerful tool for development and that's that's why you know Sanchez has been set up the way it is and yeah that's how I got to do what I do. Was Sanchez's first web before it became brick and mortar? We talked earlier about how we met when I just happened to stumble upon yeah. Sancho's on the trip to Exeter. But how did you really get it kickstarted? Yeah, actually a pop-up. So I, I used to come back to England with like suitcases full of things from Ethiopia. We started up with just doing markets and then there was a pop-up opportunity. So we did that. We weren't running a business though. It was genuinely, it was like me and Vidmantis playing piano, singing songs. And someone came in to try on a dress. It was like the best day ever. <laughs> And that was us running the business. I don't know why I love that so much, though. It sounds really lovely. <laughs> it was lovely, but we're, we're making so little money that we went back to the city council to ask them to stay in that pop-up. And they said, look, you're making less money than the big issue vendors. Like, we can't keep you in this pop-up. Right, right. <laughs> but they were wrong, obviously. And we had made enough to save enough for a deposit of a permanent space. And then that's how we Yeah. That's amazing. And I would love to know more about your transparent pricing, pay what you can initiative, because I think that's really cool. And I think what sustainability needs so much is people thinking outside of the box. Like we just have a system that is our fashion system and everybody's kind of like, well, those are the rules while expecting everything to change. Like we need to get from point A to point Z essentially. And everybody's sort of at like point B while going on about, well, that's just how we've always done it. So whenever someone does something a bit differently, I think it's worth highlighting because we really have to reinvent the game plan if we want to, you know, move in the direction that we need to be in as a society. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Um, And I guess that's what happened. Um, So we all know sustainable fashion is more expensive. And most of that expense is because the way in which makers and that's from cotton farmers through to spinners to weavers you know all the way through to fabric production the way that they are employed and paid is less exploitative you know I'm not going to say it's not exploitative because I think a statement like that should be proved not just um, assumed so it costs more money right so it does cost more money but that doesn't mean much to people who can't pay for it and my family right we're Mm -hmm. working class so I do know largely that most people could pay a bit more, but I also in my heart know that some people, you know, it's not going to be their priority whatsoever. So I sent out an email ad of a product in the spring and I got a response from a customer saying, look, I really can't afford this. Like I can't afford this product and Mm -hmm. I'm going to leave your newsletter as a result of that. And I was like, damn, like, that's crazy. Because what's the point of being in business if you're trying to sell things people can't afford? Like, it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't add up, right? I also know that feeling of inaffordability isn't shared amongst all of my customers. Mm -hmm. I know some of my customers, it's very affordable. Our price, they would pay more for what we sell. I feel like you are incredibly affordable in the grand scheme of like sustainable retailers. I think the problem with all of it is that we've been really brainwashed into thinking that fast fashion prices are affordable and fair when they are not at all for anyone within the supply chain. And so I think that as a society, we have to have really public conversations about what fair wages looks like. You know, if we're talking about raising wages for people in the supply chain, I think we have to have a conversation about just wages all around because right now, the cost of things has gone up and the wages have pretty much stagnated in a lot of different areas of the world, basically. I think I saw Bernie Sanders like shared a post or something on his Instagram saying that in America, the minimum wage hasn't changed for the last 30 years. So people earning that minimum wage, their incomes have flatlined. And of course, inflation has been, you know, over 20%. So it's unsustainable. Like people higher wages not just Um, that but also in the UK the cost of a house like there's a diagram that I have and it basically compares the cost of a house in the 90s versus the cost of a house today but meanwhile the wages haven't gone up at the same time as the cost of housing and so in the 90s the average UK house price was 
57,726 pounds. The average household income in the 90s was 20,448 pounds. In 2020, the average UK house price is 237,000 pounds. The average household income is 37,000 pounds. And so you have something where the cost of things are going up, but the wages do not supplement that. And so that's how you have a society where things are incredibly unequal. And there's so much discohesion. It's a mouthful way of saying it, but there's so many problems in society. And it's like, of course there are. If people can't get what they work for, if they can't see their lives like returning their effort and be hopeful, yeah. there's going to be so many problems. So, so for me, the transparent pricing model, what that illustrates is that it's fine if we don't all have the same resources. That isn't a reason for people with more not to give more when they can. And it's, yes. that's my objective with it, is just to kind of paint that picture Really understand where you sit in this. Understand if you're somebody who could not afford it, in which case mm-hmm. we'll give it to you at cost. Like, And it'll be our pleasure too, because we know that garment makers have been paid more for this item, right? But if you have the resources, pay more, because that keeps us in business. And that money isn't being like siphoned away. It's not paying for anyone's second home. It's just paying for us to exist do you know what I mean and that's what we try to illustrate with that transparent pricing model we've got three pricing points so the first is the cost of selling that item to us so we communicate how much it costs for us to get that item and ship it to the customer essentially and the second cost pays for our marketing you know our business kind of management you know very essential costs for running any business but not quite the cost of the product and then the third cost communicates to the customer how much we would be making in a profit margin for that item and that money goes back into running our business so that's what we mean by transparent it's transparent for um in communicating how our business works and what we get back from an item and you know businesses have sales right so they make things cheaper but I think when when you have flat rate sales it's like a flat rate tax right everyone Mm -hmm. gets the same thing yeah this is just a way of being like you know categorize yourself do what you can pay what you can and if people pay more then there's more options for people to pay less and it's been amazing actually like I'm an optimist I'm a realist but I'm also an optimist and you know people have kept it very healthy for us and we sell at every price point but I don't think it's being kind of exploited in the way that I don't think people are using it as a way to just get things really cheaply from us because of course if we're selling things that cost all the time we wouldn't be in business. We didn't talk about Black Friday. I never know what to say about Black Friday. Um, I always feel trapped because if I don't engage in it, we'll lose out on sales and then that has other consequences for the business. But we never do like a big discount because we can't, like we don't yeah. have the margins. And I always try to tell our customers to kind of only buy what they know they need yeah it's hard to sell them the rule of thumb for me is always if you didn't want it before black friday then don't buy it because the the thing that i'm talking about a lot is how much planned obsolescence goes into black friday now you know like for big box stores there's a bunch of stuff that gets rolled out that was built to be at that price point and so it's sold to us like oh, you're getting such a good deal. But in actuality, that sweater was produced specifically to be that price. Mm -hmm. And the thing that you actually really want isn't actually really on sale. And so I always tell people to sort of go into that sort of stuff thinking, what would I actually buy full price? And then if there's a deal on that, cool, you know, but I generally, for Black Friday, Laura Jean and I are actually upping our garment workers cut we're giving a discount but we're giving that discount cut to our garment workers essentially so we're lowering our own profit margin for black friday because of what's been going on with all the garment workers but in general i feel very conflicted because obviously you know black friday has become like this new way to make fun of people that you know shop on those days because it's affordable for them but i think we just have to have a more 
critical conversation about capitalism that doesn't involve demonizing people that are around or below the poverty line. Yeah, I think it's really like an innovative idea. And I think it's another example of like really showing customers what's possible, you know, because until brands do that, like you don't realize it's a choice. But yeah, I think what you and Laura have illustrated is at any point in time, brands can pay garment workers more. Yes. Yes, they absolutely can. And that's the thing is that like my collaboration with Laura doesn't make me rich. It doesn't make me enough money to live off of, frankly, but I didn't do it for that. I did it because it's important to show that it can be done. So for these bigger brands that are making hand over fist billions of dollars for their collective owners, they are absolutely the people that should be cleaning up their act. And every time I do something, whether it's making ethical plus size fashion, I'm always doing it to show that when the bigger brands tell you they can't do it, they're lying. They can. They choose not to. Every day, they choose not to. Where do you want to see the fashion landscape in five years? Yes. So I think one of the big problems of fashion that I'd like to kind of bring to the forefront is the reliance on this linear business model so there's a growing awareness of the circular economy and so now we have frameworks to kind of describe what we mean all fashion businesses their revenue models are completely tied to the production of new items so even if they're the most sustainable companies without producing new items to sell they risk not surviving and that is a daily pressure weekly pressure and what fast fashion has done is it's optimized the ability to produce new items like faster to the expense of you know everything everything people planet but smaller brands you know sustainable brands including sancho's right we have the same pressures like we have to produce new things source new things and I think that the future of fashion needs to break away from this linear business model because without that, the incentive is always going to be to produce new and the person who's going to win is always going to be the person who can produce the most. Newest, the fastest. fastest. Yeah. And then they'll attract customers, investment, power, decision-making, everything. I've been thinking about it almost every day. And I think the solution is in understanding that products have value indefinitely so they have value in their garment form they have value when they're piled up in our wardrobes and we're not wearing them they have value you know in a charity shop they have value when they've been downcycled to its component parts they always have value and it's creating systems that can unlock their value um, so that we're not always producing new and that's what I want to see fashion do um, and I want to see it do it whilst also being inclusive of garment workers, inclusive of the marginalised, inclusive of plus size communities. Yeah. Just, you know, where decision is diffused, power is diffused. But I think we all need to come out of this. Let's just keep producing new. I guess what I wanted to ask you would be like, how do we engage citizens in looking? because Basically, the linear model is everything we've been brought up on. I know. It's everything. It's everything our parents were brought up on. They just moved at a much slower pace, basically. Like, you know, they would have a pair of trousers for 10 plus years and replace the zipper. Our generation came about and it was like, you don't have to replace anything. Just throw it in the trash. You know, it was just like, oh, wow, this is great. I can buy you pairs of trousers I don't have to replace anything it's just like no actually this is horrible and so I guess I just wonder how do we shift like citizen awareness because Mm -hmm. this is all that people know and so where do we even start with it you know yeah um that's a a really big question you set that up as though it was going to be simple huge question And it's got so many different answers, doesn't it? Like, I have to be honest, like, I was always a bit sceptical about the power of changing a system by changing consumers. Like, I have, but I've seen it happen. Like, in in the years I've been working, I've seen how, you know, more people are looking for sustainable products. You know, we used to explain to people the fabric composition of our garments. Now people come in and explain to us the fabric composition of our garments. Like, my family who are very much working class, you know, mm-hmm. like immigrants, 
now they are thinking about you know plastic pollution and repairing their clothes and you know not buying new and I just want to like qualify that by saying like they're not inherently pollutative but because Mm -hmm. of their understanding that life in the west would have been a certain way they would have wanted to buy into the excessive consumption of the west this is a conversation Stephen and I totally have because people who are immigrate from like global south or just countries in general that are different than the UK and the US they actually have to come here and get used to our weird habits, which are actually counterproductive. I mean, that's one of the answers, isn't it? Like one of the answers of how do we change is we look at other communities and we see, well, how are they living? Yeah. How have they figured it out? Do you know one thing I read today? I read that um, two thirds of the UN have agreed to new um, plastic reduction policies without leadership of the UK or the US, which I think signals to... Who's really going to lead our kind of climate strategies? Perhaps that's one of the solutions for fashion as well. Like I think, for example, in the industry, we often look for leadership from white leaders here, don't mm-hmm. we, in the West? Yeah. But actually, maybe the leadership comes from garment workers in the East and the Global South. It's more about, you know, taking their heed and giving them more power than it is about us trying to change consumers over here, perhaps. Oh, I- Absolutely. And then the final thing I'll say is that I think that um, we really need to look at what businesses are incentivized to do and why. And I think one of the biggest issues is the kind of the distance between shareholders of companies that have huge power and stakeholders mm-hmm. of companies who have huge power and trying to like shorten that distance a little bit. So you don't have people who don't bear any of the consequences of their choices leading huge organizations but I, I do think change is possible. And I think that, you know, Aja, I think you've led so much change yourself. And I think you are a perfect example of how huge swathes of people can have their perspective shifted like massively through the right logic, the right rhetoric, the right incentives, the right motives and a commitment to it too. So um, one of the things that bugs me so much is when people are like, oh, you know, I get it. Like, you know, 100 companies on this planet are responsible for 71% of carbon emissions. I get it. I get it. However, I think that individual action has its place because you can't be engaged to take on these companies if you're not thinking about these things in your life. You can. And obviously, there's a lot of power and privilege that can come into play when having these conversations who has the power to change who has the you know what I mean like so I totally get it but I hate when people put down the idea that the individual doesn't have power because we're just slaves to these corporations and I just I find that really defeatist and unhelpful like yes it is these corporations however I think any person could do what I do I really think that and I think We need a lot of voices, you know, talking about privilege and who gets to hold the mic is super important as well. And so I hope that more people will feel empowered. A lot of people just don't know where to start. Yeah, absolutely. I think the argument that consumers don't play a role, citizens don't play a role is pretty lazy. And it kind of makes this weird assumption that businesses aren't run by people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Are people working there? It's like, no, we're all people. It's all But at the same yeah. time, though, like corporations also will be like, we're just people. It's like, yeah. no, you're not. You know that, what I mean? So like, um, but at the end of the day, yes, you know, for a lot of businesses, it is just a person. And they can be with enough kind of incentive, with enough reasoning, with enough motivation, enough passion. I think everyone's perspective and choices can change. So yeah, let's hope there's more um, as we go forward. And that's, yeah. I feel very like hopeful. And I guess my hope for the next, you know, five years and you were like, here's a very, very well thought out thing. And I'm like, oh, mine is just (laughs) that less people buy from big brands. I've always said that like part of the issue with all of this is the amount of power that a lot of these brands have. And how there's a lack of incentive for them to actually change because people just keep giving them money. Yeah. You know, if, if you're doing something harmful and nobody stops you from doing that harmful thing, you'll just continue to do the harmful thing. You'll be like, 
oh, well, it's working out for me. I'm making trillions of dollars. It's fine, you know? And I think for a lot of businesses, corporations have absolutely no, they have no ability to hold empathy because they always have to act in their own best interest. Yeah. Which means that if a corporation is hurting and harming the planet, but making a profit, they will always pick that profit because that's the nature of corporations. It's very hard when you have shareholders in which you are always expected to turn a profit for, for you to turn around and say like, Hey guys, guess what? We're not going to make as much stuff this year because it's really bad for the planet. I know, I know that you put money on us and you want to see a return, but it's just not going to happen. That's not going to happen for a lot of corporations. The only way that these corporations will change is when they lose your money. And I firmly believe that. So if you are shopping from one company and just giving them all of your money, you're continuing to reward them for what they're doing. When you take your money away and say, you know, I don't want to work with this company anymore. I don't want to give them my money anymore because I see that they're not treating their garment workers well. I see that they're producing thousands of garments every single day, and that's just not a sustainable practice. I see what they're doing. So instead, I'm going to go to Asancho's and buy my underpants there. These companies pay attention to these things. You know, they see a drop in their line and their budget line, but then they see that Sancho's is actually doing pretty okay and starting to like open more brick and mortar. They're going to say, oh my goodness, how do we get these customers back? Yeah. And they're going to know. And so my next five-year goal is to see a lot of the bigger companies just have less power in the spaces because yeah. once they lose that power, that's when they'll start to actually make the change that we all need for our mutually assured survival on this planet. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Signed, agreed. But, you know, <laughs> I'm there with you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis Patreon community and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles and special access. Because I love you Because I love you Because I love you